Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Chuck Gunderson with us. Was raised in San Diego, the site of the Beatles' eighth stop on their 1965 North American tour. He was a little too young to attend the show, but fondly recalls his older siblings spinning the records of the Fab Four as he grew, which perked a lifelong love for the band. He has worked in the outdoor advertising industry most of his life, although his true compassion is history, having published a few articles over the years. Chuck turned his sights to researching and writing the critically acclaimed Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 66. He has consulted on a number of various Beatles-related subjects and projects, such as director Ron Howard's recent documentary, Eight Days a Week as well. Chuck, uh, thank you for joining us. I can't believe it's been 40 years since we've lost John Lennon. George, hello, how are you? It's so good to be on. And when you play that little clip of Howard Cosell announcing the the you know terrible event that happened in New York City that night, it just brought back a flood of memories. Chilly, chilly. What got into, and Mark David uh, Chapman is 65 now, he's still in prison, he comes up for parole, it gets denied. And what What compelled him to do this? I thought he was a fan of John Lennon. Yes, but as you know, you know, some fans uh, are, uh, they also turn violent. And uh, it uh, happened that night. It was, uh, it was a terrible event. I, I don't know, George, I don't know if you remember where you were at, but I certainly remember where I was at. I was uh, 18 years old, and I was sitting on our couch in our family room watching Monday Night Football. Uh, the field goal kicker was lining up for a kick, and uh, Cosell uh, interrupted that to, to tell the news. And what's interesting is if you go onto YouTube, there's an amazing clip of the broadcast crew, including Don Meredith, um, talking about if they should announce it on the air. And they were kind of debating if they should or not, and Cosell was actually kind of against it. And it was actually, uh, I believe, Frank Gifford who... Uh, who convinced Cosell to to announce it because it was so so paramount to announce and uh, to to give the world that news? But it was surreal, George. I was sitting on the couch and you know just enjoying Monday Night Football as a young kid, and and you know I'd loved the Beatles <laughs> all my life, and uh, to hear that it just set me into utter shock. Oh my I gosh! I couldn't believe it. I was in St. Louis at the time uh, running a news department. I'm in St. Louis right now. But uh, I was uh, there in the newsroom when uh, we had all, we were an NBC station, but we had all the networks up on different uh, TV screens. And uh, I heard the Cosell remark and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, and then our wire machines were going off. They kept dinging, you know, ding, ding. And you'd look at the wire machines from the Associated Press or United Press International. And it showed that uh, he had been shot and was killed. It was, uh, it was a shocker. Yeah, and to to go back to your first question about these, you know, there are obsessive fans. I mean, there's a history of them. I mean, we have people that have uh, done this uh, in the past to several superstars in the music industry and, you know, the acting world. I mean, look at, uh, you know, uh, the person that tried to assassinate President Reagan, who had this fascination with Jodie Foster. I mean, it's just part of the fandom, and I think that is why... You know, security now is so much higher than it was, you know, when the Beatles toured, toured around the world. You know, uh, you know, even though they required a, 
150 policemen to be there. There are there's still the, you know, situations where fans could get to them. Mark David Chapman has been denied parole 11 times, and uh, he had earlier uh, refused requests for in- interviews, but has said that he did not kill John Lennon for fame or notoriety. He just uh, went into that and did what he did. If you had a chance to interview him, Chuck, what would you what would you first ask him? I guess it would be why. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you want to get into the into his head of you know why he did it. Um, I just you know I don't even know really if I you know even as a historian, George. Uh, and I know other of my colleagues who who study and follow the Beatles, you know, some have said they would love to go in and, and interview him. Um, I would have a little bit of trepidation doing it. I mean, he just took the life of such a beautiful man who gave so much in so short of a time. And I mean, 40 years, George, that's it. Um, I'm well past that. I'm and, still- uh, you know, to take the life of, 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 someone that was so gifted, so talented, just so unusually bright and uh, gave the world so much and was willing to give the world a lot more, uh, it would be a hard thing for me to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was given 20 years to life, and as I mentioned, he's been denied parole 11 times. Uh, A lot of people might not know this, Chuck, but uh, Mark David Chapman contemplated killing other public figures. He was thinking about killing Johnny Carson, Paul McCartney, uh, Ronald Reagan at the time as well. He had no prior criminal convictions, and he had just resigned from a job as a security guard in Hawaii when he made his way to New York. Just, Just a shocker. It's terrible to think of those people who are lurking around who kind of go unnoticed. And I think that's why security has gotten so much more strict now. Boy, when you go, you know, to a concert or you're near the red carpet of any sort, I mean, there's people watching, there's people checking you for firearms or any kind of threats. A lot more, lot more now than there was uh, back then. Oh yeah, you get patted down in some places too now these days. Exactly. Well, let's talk about some fun things about the life of John Lennon and the rest of the Beatles. I remember back in 1964 when they first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. I was just a little teenager at the time, but uh, they had 73 million people watching television that night. Absolutely unheard of. Yeah, it was a television record at that point. Um, it just, they just, uh, you know, a lot of people think that they kind of, you know, rose to fame right then and there uh, before our eyes. But in reality, you know, they had worked very, very hard in their native Britain to, to get where they, to get where they were to, you know, even be invited on the Sullivan show. Um, you were lucky to possibly watch him there, George, on TV. It's, it's interesting. I uh, was born in 1962, so it's about a year and a half, so I don't remember. Yeah, that. you, remember you were my, too little. I was... Yeah, my family telling me about it. Um, but So I call myself not a first-generation fan like you are. I call myself a Generation 1.5 fan. You know, I really discovered the Beatles in the 70s, uh, going to school and having friends that liked the Beatles. Uh, but yeah, that's when they burst onto the scene here in America was that uh, February 9th uh, performance on the Ed Sullivan Show in front of 73 million people. One in four television sets in America were tur- turned on that day. And Ed got him back uh, two more times. He got him for three total times, and he got him cheap, too. Normally, he would give uh, $10,000 to uh, one performance to some person or group, 
he got them for $3,500 a night. <laughs> Amazing. You know, Ed drove a hard bargain, but I think uh, the, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, was even smarter in saying, look, look at the exposure we're going to get. We're going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, uh, but, you know, Brian was also savvy as well. And one of the things that kind of uh, Mr. Sullivan didn't like too much about Brian was that uh, Epstein, Epstein wanted the Beatles to have top billing on the Ed Sullivan show that night. I mean, that was kind of unheard of. I mean, you had other bigger star, Missy Gaynor, things like that. Um, so, you know, it was a good, it was a good deal for both of them, for, for both Sullivan and, of course, you know, Brian Epstein and, and his band, the Beatles. Was it Elvis Presley who really was obsessed with the Beatles or the Beatles with Presley? Oh, it was the Beatles with Presley. I mean, they fell in love with him in, when they were all in Liverpool. I mean, Paul often talks about hearing the song All Shook Up, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it just it just sent him. And, it, and what's really interesting, George, is I've got a good friend in Dallas, Texas. You won't believe this. But he actually has the physical record, All Shook Up, that John Lennon listened to. He would go over to his friend's house wow. to listen to this record. And uh, my friend in Dallas was actually able to get that record, and so has <laughs> that original record that that John or that Paul uh, listened to over there. Well, here's a, here's a funny story for you, Chuck. Uh, in St. Louis, uh, years ago, I used to own a small video production company, which did commercials and industrials for corporations and things like that. And one day, somebody just walked into the office and uh, had a tape in his hand and was just walking around looking for a machine to play the tape uh, in our video production studio. And uh, I'm going, who is this guy walking around? It was Chuck Berry. (laughs) Yeah, the Beatles loved all the early rock and roll pioneers, Elvis, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Carl Perkins, you know, all the, the Motown girl groups. I mean, they loved them all, and they cut their teeth on it. And the Beatles were were the best at taking that American music and repackaging it and yep. then singing it their way and selling it. And they did a phenomenal job. Well, the song Till There Was You, which was in the musical The Music Man, was an old-time classic. And when I heard the Beatles do it, I thought that was theirs. <laughs> exactly. And they actually did it on the Ed Sullivan Show on that second performance in Miami when they were playing at the Deauville Hotel. Uh, which was a really That's nice right. uh, rendition of that, uh, really nice rendition of that song. And I think Paul McCartney just sang it beautifully. Now, they toured three times in the United States and North America. And if I remember, they hit uh, some stadiums, packed crowds, right? Yeah, that didn't really happen until uh, the 19... Well, it started in the 1965 tour when they played Shea Stadium in New York. That was a... Absolute sellout crowd, 55,600 people were there that night. And, um, yeah, they were starting to attract bigger crowds. In 1964, you know, Brian Epstein didn't want them to play in big stadiums. He didn't felt, felt, feel they were quite ready yet. He didn't want to, uh, wanted people to kind of want more. Uh, so in 65 and 66, they accepted engagements in, in larger cities. And in your St. Louis uh, area there, George, they played Bush Stadium on yes, they uh, did. August the, 21st, 66. The original Bush Stadium before they knocked the it down. The original Bush Stadium, yes. That, that, is, that, that is something. It was dramatic. I remember my dad talking about their haircuts, Chuck. 
And uh, <laughs> adults, all adults were freaking out about those haircuts because they knew that we were going to start growing our hair a little longer and a little longer. And every time I now look at pictures of the Beatles, the four of them, um, with this bowl cut haircut, uh, I, I went, God, that didn't look good at all. But, I mean, that was the craze. Yeah, shocking at the time. I mean, everybody just thought their hair was so long. And actually, journalists at press conferences, when they'd tour in America, they would ask, they'd ask the serious question. They said, is your hair real? I mean, they really thought they were wigs. And, uh, of course, uh, the Beatles um, kind of took that look from their time when they were uh, doing gigs in Germany in the early days, in the very early 60s. Uh, they uh, kind of got that look from some of the German friends that they had over there at the time. I had a friend who passed away a couple of years ago. He was uh, in Los Angeles. He was a record producer, uh, Russ Regan. And he discovered Neil Diamond, Elton John, and the Beach Boys. And when he found the Beach Boys, they were called the Pendletons. They were named after a sweater. And uh, Regan said, no, 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 no. You are now the Beach Boys and changed their name, and it was dramatic. How did the Beatles, do you know, how did the Beatles get their name? Well, um, so in Liverpool, where they were playing, there were there was a craze called the skiffle music, which, you know, after the war, there wasn't a lot of instruments around. You couldn't just, you know, go, I and mean, they're expensive as well. You're sure. talking about, you know, post-war Britain here, especially in the Northern Territory, you know, just, uh, you know, rough and tumble town. So they would, uh, kids would get washboards and T-chess bass and whatever they could find, old scrappy guitars. And they'd play this kind of skiffle music uh, that was kind of, uh, you know, you would hear a guy by the name of Lonnie Donegan playing music like that. And so then they started getting into this early rock and roll and beat music, and they called it uh, beat music. So um, they were, you know, thinking about that. And then um, John Lennon had a friend by the name of Stuart Sutcliffe. And, of course, one of the Beatles' idols uh, here in America was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And so John and Stu kind of thought about uh, this name with, beat in it and uh you know and they just came up with beatles uh to kind of symbolize the beat music up there in liverpool and to kind of symbolize the crickets here in america so obviously they spelt it b-e-a-t-l-e-f that's right how soon after the beatles did the rolling stones pop up so the Rolling Stones uh, popped up kind of in a contemporary space with the Beatles. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the Rolling Stones' first major hits, I Want to Be Your Man, was actually written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Ah. And the Rolling Stones were given that song to uh, to record, and of course they uh, scored a hit with it. So, you know, the Rolling Stones were more down in the London area. The Beatles were up in the north. Um, you know, they were friendly rivals, and uh, but obviously the Beatles were were way tops over the Rolling Stones. And and the Beatles' popularity was generally to what age bracket at the time? Well, it's interesting because here in America, and in researching my book, Some Fun Tonight, um, uh, in interviewing some of these fans over the years, uh, I've had I've had people tell me, you know, Chuck, I was eight years old and my parents dropped me off at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> they told picked me up in two hours and George, you know L.A. I know you live there. Yeah, you know the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, I imagine in '64 was you know you probably still wouldn't let your kid run around, but 
you know, it was kind of that uh, starting about eight years old up into the, you know, pre-teens uh, and the teenage, you know, younger teenagers. That was really kind of the core audience of the Beatles at that point. Well, now, did this core audience go to their parents and say, please buy these records for me? Because the kids, the demos, like an eight-year-old, they don't have any money. No, they don't. They don't. And, uh, you know, it would be the, the rich friends that they had or friends that had privileges that, that had had the records and uh, they went over and listened to the records. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because you would think that, you know, records were so accessible back then. Everyone, you know, you'd think everyone had a record player and people really didn't back then. <laughs> you know, you were you were kind of just like the Beatles did. If you... Uh, they had radios. Oh, a really good record. They would go to someone's house or something and listen to it. Yep, ab- absolutely. And they had their radios. That was about it. That was it. Well, and, uh, of course, Frank Sinatra, for a while, could not stand Elvis Presley because he thought that music was going to destroy his. And uh, then, of course, the Beatles came in, and uh, the rest is history. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.